0: People don't think about that a lot. You know, they just throw on a shirt and they don't think about how many hands touch that shirt.
1: At least 32 people actually make one
2: t-shirt. They said to me, well, there was no sewing in Colorado. I go, Are you kidding me?
3: Then there'll be the question of, "Okay, well, if you provide food, do they have to pay for it? Do they have a choice of bringing their own food or do they have to eat your food? And these questions get very weird. The reality is dormitories are a huge variety and all
4: over the map.
5: Sustainability has become a catch-all term. Consumers everywhere hear small brands or even huge names like Patagonia talking about sustainable fabrics and lowering carbon footprints. But what about the people who make that clothing? Few brands have an in-depth knowledge about exactly how their goods are produced. Vastly fewer consumers understand where their clothing comes from and who puts every stitch into the cloth. If you were to dig out a few t-shirts right now, Made in China is a label you'll likely find somewhere but there are far over 10,000 apparel manufacturing-focused companies in China. So how does anyone really know exactly where that piece of clothing comes from? The conditions it was sewn in? Who put it together? There is a shocking lack of transparency in apparel manufacturing, and we're going to cover some topics to hopefully shed some light on why that is. We'll be talking about manufacturing worldwide, manufacturer certifications, and other form of ethical labor verification. and we'll be talking about safety regulations, subcontracting, factory dormitories, and more. My name is Dylan, and this is our deep dive into ethical labor in the apparel industry. Welcome to Green Book Conversations. To kick things off, I spoke with Joanne Roboto, COO of 30A. I asked about her experience in apparel manufacturing and how 30A came to focus on sustainability and ethical labor.
0: I've been in the apparel industry for, I hate to admit it, 42 years at this point in time. Have always been selling mostly large uniform programs. In 2007, decided to, along with partners, start our own lifestyle brand. And I had made a conscious decision that after that many years of selling lots of polyester, I decided that it was, if I was going to develop a line, it had to be made out of recycled material, sustainable, and made ethically. So that was the mission when we started. We are a lifestyle brand. We're kind of the beach happy brand. We are inspired by an 18-mile stretch of absolutely beautiful road and beach down in the panhandle of Florida. That's really how it grew. I didn't want to put in just another t-shirt out into the market and really went on a quest to find the right fabric, the right um, factory. It needed to be on the same mission that we were. We're the beach happy company. We have to protect the beach. And, you know, that starts with trying to get plastics out of the ocean. That was step number one.
5: And being a lifestyle brand. I've seen things like sunscreens, drinks, in addition to the apparel side of
0: things. Yes. Like... We have beer, we have wine, we have seltzers, we have coffee, YOLO boards, electric bikes fits in. Anything that kind of fits in the lifestyle brand of just a happy beach life. We have our own radio station. We have a magazine called the Beach Happy Magazine. And we just try to bring... There's, en- there's enough people that are covering gloom and doom and bad news. Uh, we're the happy company, man. We only talk about happy things. So
5: so I saw on the website, the amount of plastic bottles that 30A has taken out of the water, potentially by manufacturing recycled polyester t-shirts out of them and whatnot is somewhere in the range of, I think, was it 8 million?
0: We're well over 8 million now. Yep. Yep.
5: yep.
0: Wow. Yep. Pretty proud of that for a little company.
5: What about the ethical labor side of things? When you talk about manufacturing 30A products on the apparel side of things. How do you quantify the ethical labor that goes into that? How do you find that?
0: You know, I think for me, having my background in, I mean, I've been in factories a lot in the U.S. when we were uh, manufacturing heavily here in the U.S. In the early days of my career, in the 70s and 80s, you know, I could visit 10, 15 factories in a couple days in the South. And, you know, those days are gone. But been in a lot of factories in the U.S., been in factories... All over the Caribbean, from Belize to Dominican Republic. Even was in a factory in Haiti. Haven't been to many Asian factories. Was in a factory in India. You know, I've kind of had a lot of eyeballs on it. That was important to me when we were picking the manufacturing partner for us for this line. It's not just about the fabric; it's about the people that are making it. So it was really important for me to find a factory, go to that factory, see how they treated their employees. You know, people ask all the time about ethical labor, and it's not just the paycheck that they're making a living wage. You know, I think people are very surprised to find out that, unfortunately, a lot of people that sew in the garment factories don't make a living wage. But for me, it was a lot more than just a living wage. I wanted to make sure that the factory treated the employees the right way? Were the machines set up ergonomically so that they're not doing the same repetitive task day in, day out? Are they cross-training so that they can actually get some mental stimulation as well as physical, moving out, doing different jobs, trying different things, and that they had a job. They knew they had a job. So many of the factories that I've been to, it's a name on a board every morning, you know, you show up, you stand in line. If your name's on the board, you get to work that day. If your name's not on the board, you go home or try go to the next factory and hope you can get some hours in there. So mm-hmm. ethical labor is paying a living wage, assuring that worker that they've got a job, that they know four or five days a week they can come here and work and they're being treated right. Things like clean bathrooms. I mean, some of the factories I have been in, I wouldn't go in the bathroom. So that was really important to me that, you know, they had a good working environment and that they got cross-trained. They're not, you can't sit there and put buttons on a shirt eight hours a day, five days a week, not moving. Eventually, these poor people develop carpal tunnel syndrome. So, you know, I mean, it's things that, you have to look at the whole picture. That was really important for me in this 30A project to actually go to the factory, to spend days, not just pop in for an hour and you can make anything look look good in an hour, but spend a few days in there, meet the management team, meet the employees. You can tell when you walk on a factory floor whether people like being there. There's a language barrier, but you can tell.
5: Aside from showing up in person, how can you verify that a factory employs ethical labor? One answer to that is certifications. There are many certifications available for each point in the supply chain, and certain ones that focus more specifically on sewing factories. These certifications document a series of regulations, but are usually only audited once a year. Hey Social Good is a company that does not offer certifications, but rather verifies that a manufacturer or a supplier is committed to ethical and sustainable behavior through additional documentation. We met with Dr. Cindy Lynn during Sourcing at Magic, and here she is to talk more in depth about Hey Social Good and what it looks like to verify ethical practice with data.
4: Hey Social Good is a social impact data analytics company. What we do is we verify businesses on their practices that they're claiming or stating. One of the things we look at are if you have certifications by third parties, these are ones like RAP. W-R-A-P, there is BSCI, there is SEDEX. You would go to that third party, and what they do is they do an on-site audit. They'll come maybe once a year, for example, and they'll check, for example, like, do you have emergency exits? Do you have fire extinguishers? Some of them will actually look at your wage and how many employees do you have? And they'll actually even dig into the books of, like, when do you pay wages and is it comparable or does it meet some of that country's wage, you know, minimum wage requirement, right? Like we have in the United States. I would say that of the manufacturers that we've looked at, the ones who do that are probably about based on just kind of our review of hundreds of manufacturers is somewhere around 25 to 30% who actually will get those certifications. There are a lot of manufacturers who don't. And the reasons are why it could be they can't afford it, they don't value it, they don't know about it, they don't understand how to go about it. And then let's say that you know about it, and then you have to find the funds to support it, and that could be very costly depending on the size of your manufacturing. There are many manufacturers who their profit margins are small, and they're not like a huge conglomerate group. For those manufacturers for social good, our goal is to not... Limit people if they're truly working on some legitimate practice that fair treatment to workers, right? That's what we're looking at wage equity, etc. So what we look at is a couple of things. The first set is. Any publicly available information they have about how they work with other partners, like say if they work with craft artists and they can name who those craft artists so we can actually seek them out or pinpoint them. If they're very, very detailed about what that practice means, that's one part as we look for some documentation of that. So there's a lot of smaller manufacturers around, particularly, you know, wool, or wool fibers is one of those where in countries, for example, like in South America or even Central America, where they are small. I mean, it's literally craft artists like 50, which might seem a lot for some, but it's actually small when you're talking about hundreds or thousands, you know, in a manufacturing facility. But they are really focused on treating their workers because it's almost like a community is all working on it. So in those situations, what we're looking for are any kind of evidence, right? Their description of their process, frankly, even photo documentation, receipts, invoices, all kinds of those things that helps us try to fill the gap where they can't afford to pay a large certification so that we can double check. Oh, okay, you're actually working on something where it's truly helping your community. I won't say it's just other countries. That's also the case in the United States. In the U.S., there's a lot of small groups who, you know, maybe it starts off with just like, we thought this would be a good idea to knit. And then it kind of becomes a thing. So similarly, you have that everywhere. What we're looking for is a consistent pattern of practice not just you get that one certification, you're done. We'll follow the black hole, so to speak, of like, okay, it was cool that they did it this time. Do we see that repeated over time? Do we see that practice repeated? The advent of data information in our world. All kinds of people will upload videos, as you know, via all kinds of social platforms. Even people who work in factories will upload videos, even if it's not from a official source you can get access to information from other people within and you can hear. It. And so there's actually a whole other effort where people are trying to use that information. So that's what we also look at.
5: So you can even um, go into social media's what like, sorry, employees social media pages and see the posts exactly. they're making about the factory and what they're up to inside.
4: Yeah. So we've seen things like that. You know, I think that in the last year or two, there's probably like, there's more awareness by the factories who do that. But You can still find little things that kind of bleed out. And again, it's not like we're focused on that one thing, right? So we're trying to look at the collection of all the information to let us know we're not out to ding anybody. We're out to just show like, are they making consistent practice? Are they improving on their sustainability? You know, what we do is we metal rank and we verify, right? So we have two processes. Meta ranking to just recognize their consistent, expansive, and work on whatever it's sustainable ethical process in depth over time. And then we verify if we corroborate with additional documentation. Our mission is to encourage businesses to do more.
5: How do you find the manufacturer for you? A company called Threefold, that's spelled T H R three E F O L D, is working on a platform for networking with sustainable, ethically focused factories.
1: I'm Jessica Kelly, and I'm the founder of Threefold. I started in the fashion industry 12 years ago. I got my start in New York in PR and had the privilege of working with two of the top PR agencies in the industry. So I was helping process invitation requests and Fashion Week and scan and copy press clippings that we had gotten from our clients, which were people like Corey Birch, Tommy Hilfiger, Alexander Wang. Oscar de la Renta before he passed away. And so it was just a really great crash course into who's who in the industry. I had been in the industry a few years when I really started feeling like I had had the Devil Wears Prada jobs that I had dreamed of and really felt like I was having this moment of reckoning where I didn't really see what any of it mattered and what bigger difference was being had. I had an opportunity to go on a mission trip to Zimbabwe. It was my first time in a developing nation. Africa absolutely stole my heart. I was just very overwhelmed by the joy and the generosity of the people, such incredible entrepreneurial spirit, but very little job opportunity. And at the time, there was a really oppressive dictator who was keeping a lot of that opportunity away as well. I just was very pulled to create some kind of a difference that could create jobs for people. I had this one idea, but I didn't have enough background or understanding of production. And so I went on a month-long research and development trip to India in 2016 and met with anyone and everyone who would meet with me, really. Um, And it ended up being just a slew of different kinds of factories from small-scale shops who were focused on employing women who had been rescued out of sex trafficking and giving them a whole fresh start, financial planning classes, life skill classes, housing, in addition to a job and India's largest manufacturing exporter who makes for Target, H&M, Kohl's. And they had leading or still do have leading labor standards in the industry. They have daycare for their employees' kids. They have machines that dye denim with one glass of water. And I just was so overwhelmed at like all these great things and why this made in Asia stigma was still so prevalent that that was a bad thing. I took a look and all of their websites were pretty terrible. It wasn't like you would just go online and search for good factories and this list of factories comes up. It seemed to me that it should be a place kind of like Airbnb where people, brands could go to search ethical factories and make faster decisions in their sourcing to really improve their impact and shore up their supply chain. That was the impetus of Threefold. That could make it easier for brands to have good, safe standards for people in their supply chain.
5: So what, for you, qualifies ethical labor?
1: When it comes to being ethically made, all the certifications that we accept do vary slightly in what their minimums are, but they all revolve around the same eight core tenants. So that's going to be no slave labor, uh, no child labor, fair pay, uh, legal pay. So in some cases, it's the country's legal minimum wage. In other cases, it's the living wage, which is much higher. No discrimination, the right to unionize clear communication and safe communication from management, safe building working conditions. And then they all have some form of the sustainability improvement plan. Some certifications like GOTS, go further and have actual chemical requirements and and more detailed constraints in order to get that certification. But for the most part, they all have some kind of a, we want to see you improving in sustainability. But the reason that we really capped it with just the social compliance is sustainability is a never ending road. There's always something you can do to improve. We are a product-based industry. We are never going to be 100% sustainable. There is no, you've made it. You're now sustainable. You can kick back and you're done. There wasn't a line in the sand I felt like we could draw. Whereas you're either employing human trafficked, like people that have been trafficked or not, you're employing children or not. And so those are the standards that we have said is at least a bare minimum that suppliers have to meet in order to be accepted onto our platform. How
5: big has the platform gotten?
1: Yeah, no, we've actually stayed really small. We have factories spanning from Guatemala to Sri Lanka. I'd say we have about 40 factories now. I have refused to compromise on our standards. So we will get a lot of factories that do apply, that don't have a certification or no way to prove their standards. We've unfortunately had factories apply with fraudulent certifications that we've checked because that's what we do and see that they're not real, um, which is unfortunate. But we focus more on quality rather than quantity. And then what we have really started rolling out second half of last year and into this year is higher touch sustainability consulting, because what we've also seen is there's so many options. Brands don't know which direction to go. They don't want to be canceled for trying something. A lot of these solutions are very costly to implement, and they don't want an expensive lawsuit on top of it. And they want to do better but they need to figure out what that is so we've started offering sustainability training for teams so that they're making more educated decisions really just wanting to connect brands into all of these innovators that we're connected to in this space so our tech solution is certainly one of those um, and then we have people in our network that have blockchain traceability solutions, digital product passports that you can scan to see the whole supply chain so your customers get that on the back end, peer-to-peer resale platforms that allow you to put in resale in your own brand's website. So there's a lot of opportunities. And every brand's gonna be a little different in the, the path they take to be launching in more in their sustainability. So we're starting to have those higher quality conversations with brands to help them roll out what that best plan is for them. And so we started working last year with a mega e commerce brand. We're starting with training their team. And from there, they've, created a framework while we've been working with them for what their people planet process looks like. We're continuing to work with them as they grow and help them make those right decisions. So yeah, we're trying to make this world a little easier to navigate because it is overwhelming, but it's something worth getting right.
5: If I'm a small brand, how would I go to threefold and find my manufacturer? It's guide me through the process.
1: Yeah. So I always recommend to make sure you at least are meeting a 500 unit minimum order quantity first before you come work with us, because that's the bare minimum that our factories have for orders they'll take. But you can go to threefold.com. As you mentioned, that's T-H-R-3-E-F-O-L-D. There, you can see information about the platform, about the work, create an inquiry for us to chat more about what that could look like for you. And we can get started from there. And then obviously, if you're a more scaled brand, let's chat because there's a lot of solutions that are pretty easy and plug and play. We can get you going on and help most importantly with the communication on how you tell your customers that without greenwashing, which is I think a really present fear for brands is how, how do you do that well? So
5: we would love to help. What's greenwashing?
1: (laughs) So greenwashing is really just what we're seeing. You know, every brand's talking about what they're doing to try and be sustainable, but there is varying degrees of what is actually happening in the brand. So, you know, you can go on Amazon and search organic something and find polyester products that are not sustainable at all. And because, like I said, there is no line when it comes to sustainability, I think brands in the industry alike are having a hard time policing who gets to say they're sustainable because it is a very vague term. For example, there's a greenwashing uh, regulation in France that they're going to start regulating how people, how brands communicate their sustainability initiatives. So. Again, that's greenwashing is almost as vague as sustainability, but it's essentially claiming that you're doing sustainable practices while maybe not actually doing as much as you're saying. I always liken it to if you go down the grocery aisle to the juice and you see juice and it's like 100% juice, 100% juice, 100% juice. But then you like read the ingredients and it's like, fruits, like the smallest ingredient in the ingredient list. And it's like concentrate and they're allowed to say that. However, same thing in fashion, you know, are you allowed to say this is fat free when it's full of sugar and terrible for you? And that's called a diet food, right? So it's like, what do we allow brands to claim that's misleading customers into thinking that this is a sustainable product they're supporting? So That's really the back end of all, or the front end, I guess I should say, of all of this. The end result is, you know, you're trying to do all this stuff for marketing to make your brand have good standards and be more profitable, let's be honest. And so making sure that you're doing that and it doesn't result in a $5 million lawsuit like we have brands in today is making sure you do that right is important.
5: Next, I sat down to talk with someone in Denver with a very different background.
2: My name is Jack Makowski. I'm executive vice president of Ralph's Industrial Sewing, and I'm chairman of the board of Denver Design Incubator. My background is uh, kind of interesting and different. I have three degrees. My first one was mechanical engineering with a minor in physics and mechanical design. My second one was industrial engineering with a minor in physics and industrial design. Then I went to Oregon State and got my master's in industrial engineering with a minor in business. Got out in 1972. And There weren't many jobs. (laughs) So I walked into a big purple building in Pueblo West, Colorado, and it was Aspen Skiware. And they were looking for an IE. And I'm like, oh, I'm one, but I didn't know a needle from a thread. 51 years later, I'm still here doing the same thing. Went from straight on the floor, managing, doing time studies, costing, getting into running whole factories. Aspen Skiware, I started there. I worked in Development of a new company called the Allen Company, which is now huge. They do gun cases and stuff like that. I went on to another company called Athlon Products, which made ski bags, boot bags, duffel bags. Had their own lines of luggage. Went from there to Op Children's Wear and Imperial Headwear, Exq, which was a made race team uniforms for Indianapolis and all this sort of stuff. After 20 years of that, I went to Ralph's Industrial Sewing. They told me come to work for him, and I go, I don't. I don't fix machines. And I says, I, uh, I call you guys when I need that. And they go, no, you can sell them. You know how to set up a factory. And we don't know that. I said, oh, okay. 31 years later, here I am, still doing the same thing. And this worked out well. You've
5: got companies you've worked with in the U.S. and setting up factories and selling machines. What experience do you have outside the U.S. with offshoring or sourcing?
2: When I worked at OP and when I worked at Aspen Skiwear, we had manufacturing offshore in the U.S. and offshore. And at that point, I would go occasionally down to Central and South America and the Caribbean and had factories in St. Lucia and St. Kitts and St. Martin and Martinique and Costa Rica and Honduras, all up and down in there, you know, and into Colombia and Venezuela. And then over into Portuguese Macau, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and a little bit into Turkey. We would do contract work. You know, they had their factory set up. We would supply them with work. they give us a quote. We'd work that out. And then I had other stuff all around the U.S. So I'd go all around the U.S. to different factories in, in Washington, North and South Carolina, into Nebraska, into Iowa, places like that, California, all up and down in there.
5: Was that mostly consulting with factories to see production lines for things like Aspen Skiware? Correct.
2: I would take, usually I would take units down there, get them quoted. If it worked out right, the numbers were good, then I'd say ship them down. When we were dealing with uh, like OPE Children's Wear, there was a, what they called an 807 and 807A program that went on in those days, it was called the Caribbean Initiative and all that. What they would do is, it was called Made in the U.S. Uh, what we did is we cut the fabric in Denver, we'd ship it down there, they'd sew it complete, maybe leave one button off or put not put a label in or something. So they come back, then we can complete it there and it was done. And that's the way we did it. That way, you could put it in there what they call their 807 zones or their maquiladoras. It was this little walled off area factory that factories, and it was in that area, and that made it so you weren't dealing out in the outside public. And those factories were beautiful down there. I have to tell you, it was. Sometimes you have an attitude like, "What do they got?" You know, it's it's a sweatshop. Mm-mm. They were gorgeous. They were big. They were nice.
5: Then you say. They would leave a button or a tag off intentionally? It, no, that's outside?
2: what we had to do. Because huh. if we had it as a finished product, then it had, came back to the U.S. and there was all kind of duty that had to be paid on it. Oh. But if it was set up to where you had it incomplete, then it had to be come back to be completed in the United States. It was all legal. That's the way they did it. And then you had to put a button on it or you had to put the label on it. Or you had to, at that point, then you didn't have to pay duty on it. So you could do this fa- manufacturing there.
5: That's interesting. Mm-hmm.
2: It was, I mean, in one sense, it, it was good because we provided jobs for people that were in the cane fields chopping cane. And the other thing that was kind of bad was that we went from an era where we had a factory in every little town somewhere making something, and instead we shut it all down and sent it somewhere else in the world. Back in the 80s, we decided we were were going to disrespect all the sewers. In other words, it was like, oh, that's something Grandma did. She could figure it out. It's nothing. Shut the factories down and get them out of here, right? Not realizing that these people had some really nice skills. They were more skilled than a welder but you pay a well to $150 an hour, no big deal. But because grandma fixed your pants one time, you think that, that you shouldn't pay anything. I was on NPR one time. They said to me, well, there was no sewing in Colorado. I go, are you kidding me? I says, I could leave Pueblo, head north, all the way up to Cheyenne, all the way down to Albuquerque South, all the way east into Kansas, or from this point in Denver, all the way into Nebraska. And I said, there was a factory in every town. They were sewing something or making something or assembling something. And not only that, then they had pickle packing factories, and they had guys making parts for a tractor. There was something. Now there's a bunch of empty buildings.
5: What about supply chain transparency? Coming through the industry, what issues, if any, did you run into with knowing exactly where things were coming from?
2: I didn't have too much of a problem with it in my day because most stuff was here. The only time I had problems later was when the government would require certain things like it had to be made in USA. Well, we don't make any machines in America, right? But you'd buy it from that guy in New Jersey. So they'd say, well, that's good enough. Well, <laughs> yeah, it came from China, came from Japan, whatever, you know.
5: It's got that little Made in China stamp on yeah, it somewhere. Yeah, it
2: says, but, well, I bought it from, uh, you know, Joe Jones out there in New Jersey, and he sent it to me. Okay, huh. good. But as far as fabrics and materials and all that sort of stuff, I didn't have to deal much with that. Because usually everything was made domestically. Now that's all gone. And I hear people constantly complaining to me about, we can't get Velcro, or we can't get buttons, or we can't get um, zippers, or we can't get... I don't know what to tell you, you know, because it's not here.
5: And it gets harder to monitor that as it gets farther away.
2: It's That is hard to monitor, and it's hard to, when it gets here, is it wrong? And when it's wrong, what are you going to do about it? You're still out.
0: There's just not the factories that used to be here. There's not people that used to be generations. I could go in our factories that we used to have in in, uh, North Georgia. And, you know, it was a grandmother, a mother, and a daughter, and the son. And they all worked in that factory. That was what they did. And, you know, as the kids got better educated, they didn't want to be in the factory. The factories were looked at as, oh, you don't want to work in a factory. And we competed with people like McDonald's even, you know, that had better wages, better benefits, things like that. So we kind of lost those generations coming in to the American factories. I'd love to make more here. I can't find people that Mm. can make stuff here in quantity. I would love to see it come back. I'm not optimistic that it will come back. A lot of people always say to me, well, aren't you, we can just do with robots, you know? And i very hard to sew garments with a robot. There's nuances to it that, the human eye and hand still has to be involved in. A lot of us, I'll speak to my uniform side of the business, were forced to go offshore because so many American factories closed. I see it kind of going full cycle. Particularly, I see a lot of business coming back into the Southern Hemisphere. Guatemala, Mexico, I think Central and South America, we're going to see a lot more stuff being made there. And a lot of that had to do with COVID and trying to just move containers. There's a whole nother thing that gets involved when you're offshoring. What's that footprint of, of the container ships or all the air freight that's going on? I like to keep things closer to home. Cuts down on the lead time and it cuts basically down on your carbon footprint as well. We've done some offshoring in the past. It's difficult to, you don't know what you're getting until it hits the port. It's hard to go over and inspect. We're not that big. So as a small company, offshoring really isn't a good answer for us. It was important to try to keep things here in this hemisphere where if there was an issue, I could go down there and look at it. Where it's a lot harder to go to Asia or India to look at a factory. Where here, we could make regular routine visits. We tried to go to the Mm -hmm. factory twice a year.
1: Made in doesn't mean anything as far as standards go. Ethically made is a totally different thing. And we've even had, I mean, every year we have instances of trafficking and poor working conditions found in Los Angeles, in New York, so many in New York, in the UK. It happens consistently and it often doesn't get news coverage because there's a lot of things to talk about in the news. When it comes to offshoring, Pandora's box is open. We are a global industry, whether we want to be or not. There is no going back to the days when we only sustain this entire industry in America. That being said, I'll backtrack real quickly. There are even things today that you can't even get made in America. I had a friend several years ago who wanted to do a completely made in America leather handbag brand. And there are no hooks, closures, and clasps that are even made in America anymore. They're all made in China. So there are some components beyond just the garment factories themselves um, that have just completely died in our country because they just haven't been used here in so long.
5: It Sounds like the factories that you worked with down in Central America region. They're beautiful. Beautiful, big factories, big. had good safety features.
2: I didn't see any safety problems, but they had the latest equipment. Their, the lighting was terrific. Their walls were painted white. The lighting was beautiful. They were air conditioned. They had bathrooms were nice. They had cafeterias to, for the people to eat that were nice. I was always like, I don't know if we have it even here most of the time, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't hear people upset or complaining or whatever. They were always seemed to be friendly and nice and happy and all that. I didn't see any injuries or anything like that. But it was, it was done very well. That's all I know that I saw there. The places I saw ugly factories, I went into some stuff in L.A. Whew. <laughs> there were some factories, you know, or bad Uh, that's where you want to look at the old sweatshop? Yeah, we had the sweatshops. We had the Triangle Shirt Factory, right? It was us, not Costa Rica.
5: The reason
1: that we have all of the labor requirements and building codes that we do actually all typically stems back to the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire that was in Greenwich Village in New York City uh, in 1911. When that fire happened, there was a lot of Italian and, and Jewish girls that were working in the garment factory. That was a common job for immigrants in the U.S. at the time to get for girls, young girls. And they were locked and trapped in there. And it really stemmed, or I should say, it was the impetus for all of our modern workplace codes and safety conditions we require in the U.S. today. A lot of people don't know that.
5: The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was a manufacturer of women's blouses. That fire in March of 1911 claimed the lives of 146 people. The fire escapes collapsed, and fire truck ladders were unable to reach up the eight floors to the factory. The doors inside had been locked to prevent theft. The incident led to the creation of the Factory Investigating Commission, which eventually created 30 new health and safety laws in New York. Factory disasters are not isolated incidents, and it is not a problem that has gone away. According to Sourcing Journal, on November 22nd last year, a factory fire in central China killed 38 people. To escape, workers had to cut through wire fences and jump over meter-high walls. Other factories, especially metalworking and chemically-based industries, have seen much higher death counts and injuries. The factory disaster that has garnered the most media attention was Rana Plaza in Bangladesh during 2013 the factory collapse resulted in the death of over a 1,000 workers.
1: Rana Plaza, I think, had a similar awakening in our modern industry of what was going on in other countries, albeit they're other countries and they're not our companies, so we can't have the same exact protocols that get rolled out because you know we can't create laws for other countries. However, when you are thinking of what workplace safety means... It's a few things. It's not just the fire exit signs or the fire extinguishers being present and people knowing where they are, which is definitely a part of that, but it's making sure that the exits are not locked. That's actually a really common practice in a lot of factories still today that also happened at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, which is the owners not trusting that the workers aren't going to steal product. And so they lock all of the doors to not let workers go out and take a break, to not let workers leave with any product. And then, of course, the way most factories are built, you've got the cutting room floor on the bottom floor, which creates a lot of fodder when you're cutting all of that cotton and it's getting all that dust and debris. And then you've got all this machinery. And so a spark turns into kindling. That's one of the common issues when you talk about building safety is that specifically with Rana Plaza, what happened was their building had a lot of structural cracks and damages, which apparently, and I thought this was interesting, the days leading up to the collapse, workers had been complaining that they you know, saw and were worried about the cracks in the building. The owners said, no, don't worry about it. Get back to work. We need you meeting our quotas. And because garment workers in a lot of these countries where our supply chain exists get paid monthly and they get paid at the end of the month. Well, Rana Plaza was about midway through the month when that collapse happened. So people, you know, obviously need their pay. They're providing for their family. They're midway through a month that they haven't been paid for yet. So they go to work. I think many of us would do that. In developing nations, the power kicks off a lot every building has generators that'll kick back on, get the power back on. So the power is just not stable. Having generators to have that backup is a very, very common thing in all of these countries. What happened that day, the power kicked off, the generator kicked on, the generators are on the roof of the building. They create a lot of vibration when they're running. Those vibrations took those cracks and took down the building.
0: Frankly, I can tell you in the old days, I walked in factories, you could hardly get down the aisle. Things were so, you know, just jammed in there. So, you know, that whole ergonomic safety is, is very important.
4: In the United States, we have OSHA and a lot of health requirements. So if you have any kind of facility, whether that's a laboratory or a factory, you have to have all these quality assurances of like chemical use. For example, because if you're doing dyes or anything, your kind of finishings, you know, applications of stuff, you kind of have to have some kind of a process for how you're applying those chemicals. And that may or may not be the case in other countries. So another thing to look at is, do you have a system for how you apply chemicals? I mean, the whole supply chain manufacturing along that, whether you're a knitter, cutter, sewer or applying, there's some chemicals in place.
5: So I wanted to cover subcontracting because in subcontractors doesn't have to be a bad thing. I understand that there's factories that say, oh, we don't have the machine to make hats. You can make hats. We can do the rest of the order, right? Let's work together Mm -hmm. on this. But even then, I think there's a lot of concern over it because if I'm a small brand and I send my stuff somewhere, oftentimes you're not even told that your stuff's going to be sent to another factory whether it's nefarious or not, right? I mean, there's circumstances where a factory will say, we can't produce this because it's too cheap. We got to send it to the sweatshop or whatever.
1: Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point because subcontracting is nuanced. So first and foremost, one of the things that I have learned from a lot of the cultures, which we have factories, is there is, especially at least I can speak to Asia, it is considered rude to say no It is a culture of always say yes and please the client. And I think there's a portion of us that can understand that in America because we definitely have the the customer is always right mentality. However, because we also value transparency and truth, we see somebody telling us yes, but they actually can't do it and it's a no and they're doing something else behind our backs as deceitful. So I think it's important to understand in their culture, first and foremost, that They are trying to say yes to consistently please you and bring you offerings that are going to be what you're looking for. That's why I think it's good to know that and to ask questions around it. So if, you know, giving them an out, if we can't do this, what are some of our options? Can you give me other options so that you're not asking yes and no questions um, and you can get more full responses? subcontracting, the nuances of it is what you mentioned. So maybe it's a category they can't do, but factories are a small world. Everybody knows everybody in their local community or country, depending on how big the country is. And so they do know Uncle Joe down the road that has the hat factory, right? The other thing is a lot of factory owners, the good ones, you know, I can't speak to the bad ones, but are employing people that they know they can employ year round. And because fashion is very cyclical, we make all of our orders twice a year for spring, summer, or fall, winter. There's some things in between, but not as many. And we all want them at the same date, at the same time, at the same amount. A factory, they are only going to employ people full-time around the year that they can employ in the slow seasons too. And that means that in the high seasons, when they have too much work, they will find a second factory that can help them take the work on so they don't lose the order. The reason they do this is because factories always need orders. They make the least amount of money in the entire supply chain. They work on very low profit margins. And so they are always looking to find new orders, keep that business so that they can continue to stay in business and grow, especially after the last couple of years where we've seen brands cancel orders, uh, want less, even though the inflation for supplies has gone up, want less cost, So they're under a lot of pressure to deliver better and better products, more and more products at a lower and lower cost. Somebody pays for that. So it's hard because subcontracting is where it gets messy. And it's how it's where we get a lot of that, those violations happening and people need jobs. So they'll take whatever they can get. And then they get themselves stuck in a situation like that where they're not getting paid enough to live. So it's tricky. And it's something I always have in the back of my mind that I would love to figure out how to solve. I don't know. I think it's beyond just traceability, because it's how do we fix the factories that are there that need to be so I don't know. But yeah, there's there's a whole lot that goes into it for sure. Fashion's a big gray area, not a lot of black and
5: white. And you say violations and hard to trace because that's That would be uh, if you have a factory that's got all the certifications, they look great on the outside, and then they go and give it to, let's say, Uncle Joe's hat factory down the road, employ slave labor, or even just low wages and not really good working environment. Your brand wouldn't know about when that happens.
1: Right, right. And I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. You know, let's say that Uncle Joe just has people come up to his shop, they need a job, and he's like, okay, great. Or they want to only be paid cash. So they don't have traceability. They're not in the system. They could be an illegal immigrant in that country. That's often an indicator in many countries of human trafficking because they'll take them from their country that speaks their language to a country that doesn't. So that it's much harder for them to A, have any rights and B, know how to talk to people to get out of it. Like I said, very nuanced and something I'd love to figure out if there's a way to put some checks and balances around. But when you don't know where product is going, it's just very hard to track. And if there's so much of it in our industry is so global that it's it's real real hard to the cats out of the bag
5: what issues have you run into kind of verifying the supply chain history
1: yeah so we haven't tackled other tiers of the supply chain yet uh such as sourcing
5: the the fabrics and buttons and things like that any
1: subcontractors when you go into that that's going to be a little bit more like a um, blockchain traceability solution i do have friends in that space Again, it is nuanced because there's so much of this work that's down the road, Uncle Joe, who you know. And so I even question if it's not being entered incorrectly, how much does human error play a role? I'm not a blockchain expert to be able to answer that. But becoming more and more transparent does help that from the supply chain perspective. I understand that not every brand is going to make their supply chain transparent because it's their competitive advantage if they've got a great factory to not share that with other brands that'll take the factory's order quantity away and they get ousted. It's something that I've been happy to see more of, brands and factories alike stepping up with what they're transparent about. I think it makes for just an easier relationship to know what's going on. And it's interesting to some customers to be able to see who touched their product. There was a study done by McKinsey a while ago that was like, at least, and I would say this probably more than this, but at least 32 people actually make one t-shirt from a lot of different, and in, and in all reality, it probably passes through many, many hands. But key people that are stitching, sewing, dyeing, cleaning, all these things, it's a really long, deep supply chain. So transparency can be, quite a big iceberg to chip away at. I'm glad to see that more of it is happening.
5: Your brand and you're hiring a factory, don't know if they subcontract that often, they won't tell you. And So how does that play into verification?
4: That is such an excellent question, and I have to tell you, probably 18 months ago, I wouldn't even know how to answer that question, but this is what's so cool about data-driven model is that we're always collecting information and data, and we're constantly requesting all of the business that we review and assess to give us information. What's nice is that people really care about this issue, whether you work in it or you're just wearing clothing from this. Subcontracting has come out in the last, I would say, six months a lot. Now, what we're looking for is we're looking for manufacturers who are big enough that they require a policy of how they subcontract. They'll acknowledge that they subcontract. And when they subcontract, they're looking for and ensuring that the subcontractors meet these criteria that meet their mission. That's what we're looking for. To be honest, like when we first started, we didn't even know that that was a thing. But we're constantly trying to dig, like, you know, for example, just yesterday, we had a string of additional documentation we were requesting from a bunch of the, you know, kind of manufacturers who's going to sourcing. And we're like, that sounds really good, but can you give us evidence? So there's a lot of that going on. And our our attitude has to be like, oh, they didn't share it yet. I, I really, for us, it's really about being positive. And oftentimes, I would say most of the time, it is that. It is like, oh, we didn't even know you wanted to know about that doing that what happens is they're also kind of educated along with us and i think that's really critical because what we want this industry to understand is that we're all on a sustainable journey together ethical journey together some of them are like oh well we're just going to subcontract because you can imagine if you're a multinational company or a manufacturer like some of them we've reviewed some of them are saying like they're excellent and we'll look into it and remember we don't hazel sugar isn't looking for one practice so like if you're saying well we offer tensel, right which is you know a renewable fiber that's been used that's awesome we think that's fantastic but it's not enough for us what we want to see is kind of this almost this philosophy and then that translating that into practices so for subcontracting that's what we're now looking for, because previously we recognized like that's an issue we didn't know. It's, a, it's kind of this gap. and then if it's a gap we can't fill, we don't we don't give them that one. Does that make sense? We don't give them yeah. like, so to speak, a point, right? But now we're like, oh, there are great models out there where they're very they're very conscious and they highlight exactly what they do. And now that's that kind of ups the standard.
5: I asked everyone about factory dormitories. A common practice in India and China, where workers relocate to available rooms inside the factories
4: they work at. On dormitories, it's true. It is India and it it's China, and those are two of the most populous countries in the world, of course. And I think some, you'll see some of it in other places too. The reality is, dormitories are, as with anything, a huge variety and all over the map. It has gone from exceedingly horrible living conditions, um, and a lot of it has come out over the years to very helpful and supportive. I won't talk so much about the horrible conditions. I feel like people know about that. I'll talk about like where it could be helpful and supportive for the, you know, kind of employee. Oftentimes, a lot of the employees are coming from rural areas and they're looking for job opportunities. And it's very expensive to live, right? In whatever city they are at this manufacturing facility. And so there is a situation, and I won't speak for India, yeah, I'll we'll talk about China because I know about that country much better, you know, having lived there for a long time and working there. But it can be supportive and helpful for the family funds if you go Monday through Friday, right, and you work, and, you, you know, you're working all day, and then you rest, and then you go off. And so there are some manufacturers who are very supportive, like they provide, you know, um, cafeterias, they provide food, you know, a comfortable place to sleep. Because your goal there is to work, and you, you know, kind of earn the money, and then you go home on the weekends or on the holidays. Because you just can't afford to travel. And you, and the truth is, it is hard for us here to understand in the United States, and particularly because we don't have that model. But that model is common in some countries because you're trying to travel to the work. Of course, it's true that there are manufacturers who take advantage of their employees. So that definitely is the case. So if your question is like, how do we look at that? Well, so during our verification process, and we just went through this because we were setting up also for sourcing, we'll get actually, we'll request images of the dormitories. So what we want to see are like, how does it look? And we want to see that it's real. We want to corroborate those images with anything publicly available we can find. We want to look for evidence What we want to see is transparency, the discussion by the manufacturers or the company to talk about how they're treating their employees. So some are amazing. So not only do they provide dormitories, but they create healthcare on site, which they may or may not give in their, you know, kind of, you know, where they live in home community. They might have a doctor on site, right? This one, I'm pulling this one out because it just was kind of raised up for me to look at. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. Right. It's almost like. You get to go to a place where everything is clean and new. Um, you get access to health care. Sometimes some of them will even provide child care. And those are the very responsible manufacturers that are trying to overcome, you know, historically been a really bad situation.
0: I do have to sit back sometimes and put myself in the shoes of that worker. And in a lot of cases, it's the best job that they can get. It does give them, you know, a roof over their head and it does give them meals. So, you know, it's hard sometimes to really judge it when you're not in it. For me, the happier employee is somebody that, you know, has a factory located near their where they live and they can go home at lunch and check on the family and the kids and pick the kids up from school if they need to, you know, those are the types of factories that I want to be involved in.
1: So factory dormitories, for example, that small shop that was employing women who had been rescued out of sex trafficking that I had spent time with in India they had dormitories. They were putting them into better situations and giving them an opportunity to get on their own two feet. That requires transition. And then there are some factories that have them because let's say they're in a big city and a lot of people leave the towns around those cities because there's zero job opportunity. So rather than moving to Mumbai and living in a slum, maybe they live in dormitories with their coworkers. So Practically speaking, that's why they exist. Technically, if you have a dormitory, that is checked as well in those social compliance audits that we require and that we talk about. So that's another reason why they're very good to have, because any dormitory situation is going to be held to the same standards that the factory is. And again, that's where you can get some questionable situations of mattresses being thrown on a floor to you know, be like, oh, here, go sleep here. Yeah, I don't know. There's there's just a lot that can go wrong there. So making sure that that's also part of that check is a good indicator of what's going on.
5: What has 30A's experience been with direct it source
0: have been a great partner from the beginning for us. They produced our first shirt we ever sold out into the marketplace, visited the factory multiple times, taken employees down to the factory. I just really felt a kinship with that factory. By going there, I felt like, you know, we knew the management team, the people just, they enjoyed their work. We reviewed how they treated the employees, talked with management on a regular basis, watched a great expansion that they were going through when we were going down there. Besides producing a great garment, I will tell you that, you know, we very few quality issues with hundreds of thousands of shirts that we've had them make for us. I just really admired the way they treated the people and that they were part of the community. I really felt like, you know, they were part of that town and that town really respected that they were there and they were offering this opportunity. You could tell the people were really grateful and really liked what they did. And that was probably, for me, really eye opening when, when I went there because I, I do not see that very often in a factory. We've gotten a Great product. And I feel I sleep well at night knowing that, you know, the people are making our shirts have been treated fairly. I tell people all the time, take a look at what you're wearing right now. You won't believe what goes into that. People don't think about that a lot. You know, they just throw on a shirt and they don't think about how many hands touch that shirt. Real people making, making this stuff. And, you know, I just have an appreciation for Everybody that works so hard to make this thing as simple as a t-shirt.
5: So I'm sitting down with Holly now and was going to ask, what problems did direct source see in manufacturing?
3: That was actually the impetus for our starting our own sewing facility. We were working with various factories, certified factories. And as happens, it gets subcontracted out the back door to somebody else for cheaper or because the factory doesn't have the right equipment or, or whatever. And I got a call from my partner going, um, you need to come down here. <laughs> and so I went and Guatemala is a small country. So, you know, when you live there, it's pretty easy to figure out where everything went. So we go to visit the factory that's actually sewing the order that we had placed with the WRAP certified factory. And it's not legal by Guatemalan standards. So they're working behind locked doors. And it means that if the Guatemalan government finds out about it, the whole place is going to be shut down. All of the sewing that's being done in there is going to be confiscated, so you're going to lose your entire order. Not to mention quality issues because they didn't have the right quality assurance process. It was a five-story building with one way in and out. I'm certain that they weren't paying legally, weren't paying taxes. It was not a healthy and safe work environment. Couldn't figure out another way to solve that other than to build our own factory. So that's what we did.
5: What of those practices has direct source updated to get away from that?
3: We don't subcontract is the biggest one. It is standard operating procedure in this industry. And we just said, no, we're not gonna. When we sat down to build direct we kind of looked at everything. We took the time and we said, let's not just do it because this is the way we've always done it, this thing. Let's look at every aspect and say, is this the way we should do this thing? And so we kept the best of quality control procedures and some other things that you, know, you kind of do as a standard as a high quality factory. But then we looked at everything else and said, no, we don't want to do that. And when it comes to the human ethical side, frankly, we just really wanted to create a place that we wanted to work, right? So think about jobs you've had that you felt valued. You were paid well for what you did. You didn't feel just like a number. You felt like you were part of a family. You could go to your boss at any point in time and talk to them directly if there was any concerns or issues. And so that's what we created, right? So we created a place. That would be a good building to work in, a good location so our employees don't have to commute for hours and hours and hours in crazy Guatemalan traffic. You know, we pay well. We provide a lot of training. We provide a lot of support. We don't work overtime. We work five days a week, which is not normal for factories in Guatemala or pretty much anywhere in the world. And we wanted our people to have time off on the weekends to spend with their families, to spend with their friends. For some of our younger workers, they wanted to pursue Their dream jobs, right? Because sewing in a factory is not everybody's dream job. That's okay. And so by having that more limited week in terms of set hours, no overtime, no weekends, they can do that. And so we've had a couple of gentlemen graduate. They had gone to school to be mechanics. And once they got their mechanics license, they left us to go be mechanics. We had a young woman who wanted to be a chef. And so she went to culinary school. And when she graduated, we lost her as an employee, but she got her dream job. She got a job in the city as a sous chef at a James Beard awarded restaurant. So it's just been really gratifying to see people with the ability to pursue their dreams. And some of them will be with us probably forever because they love what they do. It's a great feeling.
5: We've been asking people about factory dormitories. What's your take
3: on those? <sighs> you know, I, I know it's a thing. I read the CNN article a couple weeks ago. It didn't actually have anything to do with the apparel industry. It was just talking about manufacturing in, in general. And a reporter had gone over to China to actually talk about COVID and had gone into some of these outlying villages and had government people following them. So they weren't actually allowed to ask any questions about COVID. So they were just talking to the people about whatever they could. And I just found the story so striking. These people had come home for Chinese New Year, and it was the one time in the year that they got to see their parents their children, maybe their spouse, because they had to go to the cities and live in dormitories to work so that they could support their families. And they got to come home once a year and see them. And it's not that they love doing it that way. They're just very matter of fact about it, at least in the article. uh, This is just what we have to do. And I just find that sad. I mean, not trying to put American values on anybody else's culture. But I think all cultures around the world are family centric. They want to raise their kids. They want to spend time with their friends and family and their community. And when we're shipping people off into dormitories because that's their only choice to work, I just find that a little depressing. I wouldn't want to live like that. And I hate it that other people have to choose between their family and some kind of job somewhere.
5: So I've got the WRAP, that's W-R-A-P, pre-audit assessment form here. Thought we could just go over a couple questions in it and see why they're relevant. All right. So section eight, question 23, is there clean drinking water and is it easily accessible in the facility?
3: Yeah, it's, it's sad that we have to ask that question, but in many countries we do because clean drinking water is not always readily accessible. In Guatemala, we actually have pretty good clean water. And most people in Guatemala actually drink bottled water or prepared water. They don't drink tap water um, in the hotels or even in their homes. They, they bring in water to drink. That is kind of the norm there. We have clean running water in the facility, but we actually do bring in drinking water. That's just kind of culturally and the way they do. So we do that. But, you know, it is a question. I mean, some factories don't have running water. Like the one factory that we went and saw where we found out the order had gone to have been subcontracted out. They didn't have running water in that building.
5: The following question, question 24, is drinking water provided at no cost to employees?
3: You start to see a lot of questions like this. Um, there'll be questions on there too, like, do you provide food at your factory? Which, right, if you have dormitories and people are living, you have to provide food. It's not like they can do that. We don't, our people don't live on site. They all live at home. And we have a nice picnic area, a covered picnic area where most people eat because the weather's always so nice in Guatemala. But then there'll be the question of, okay, well, if you provide food, do they have to pay for it? Do they have a choice of bringing their own food or do they have to eat your food? And these questions get very weird, right? Like, what kind of work arrangement is this, right? You're paying the employee, but they have to give so much back to the company to use the restroom or to buy water to drink or to buy food from the canteen that they're required to buy the food from. And that all gets very odd. And I kind of think it's odd that we have to ask these kinds of questions.
5: Section two, question nine is, are the doors and gates of your facility locked only after business hours?
3: Yeah, this is another question. So many, many, many factories work behind locked doors. This has been a problem in factories. If there is a fire, or if there is a, an earthquake, if there is some other issue, people can't get out. And there is a need in many areas that factory have for safety. And so the bigger factories in Guatemala City, down in the city, they have a need for safety. But if you go to the nice ones, they have a a very large wall, they have razor wire on top of the wall, and there are guards with machine guns guarding the gate. But that's to protect the facility um, and and the people in the facility, but they don't lock the doors, right? The people could leave the actual building. But some factories do have locked doors and that, again, there are horror stories in the distant past and the not too distant past of what the results are there. I mean, imagine being locked in a burning building. We don't have locked doors, and we're actually up in the foothills outside Guatemala City, so it's a beautiful and safe community. So we actually don't have guards or razor wire, and the doors are always so open because the weather's so lovely.
5: Question 12 in Section 2 is, is it mandatory for workers to use facility-provided services such as canteens, dorms, or transportation?
3: Right. And that gets back to the right? Are they an employee? Are they an indentured servant? Like, what is their status? We actually, during the pandemic, we actually did have to provide transportation for our workers because they had suspended all public transportation. And so many of our people can walk to work, so that wasn't a problem. But some of our people do take the bus to work, um, and they didn't have any way to get to work. So we actually rented a bus and hired a driver and went pick people up. But they didn't pay for that. We just did that. But, you know, when you're talking about what are your employees paying you for the things that you require of them to work there, it's just a very weird situation.
5: And I imagine that gets scarier if it's a mandatory dormitory.
3: Absolutely. And, and I, you know, you hear stories in various places that have the mandatory living. I mean, first, they're separated from their family. They're in this dormitory, which often is very small, varying levels of cleanliness, varying levels of ability to have access to food and water and restrooms. It's just not a people honoring way to live. So is... Direct to source, RAP audited? We are not RAP audited. We actually started down that path. Um, when we initially decided to build a building that could be RAP certified, that was, that was our path. We were going to be RAP certified because at that point in time, we felt like it was the most difficult certification to get and the most well respected, the most recognized. And so why not just go for the best from the get go? So when we went to build our brand new factory, we actually went to RAP. And they actually came out and looked at the site and they worked with us and our landlord who built the building to our specifications to know what we needed to do, right? We wanted to make sure that we hit all those regulations and for the building in terms of enough exits and fire escapes and signage and how wide the aisles needed to be and what, do you, you know, what are the specifications for the stairways and lighting and all of that kind of stuff. And that was our plan. So once the building was done, we had contacted RAP and said, hey, the building's almost finished. So when can we start to schedule our first assessment? And then COVID hit. And so nobody was going anywhere and um nobody was crossing borders to do any inspections or assessments. And so that lasted actually quite a long time. And, and our plan was to restart that process when we could. And then lo and behold, as things happen and change, we actually had a couple of large customers that wanted to work with us who then didn't accept RAP. They had other requirements for certifications. And so that we didn't do the RAP certification. The, all of these certifications are really, really expensive. And it's not just expensive the first time you do it. You have to renew it every, every so often, like every year or two years or three years. It depends on which certification you get. And so you know, to get many of them and keep them all up is a very, very expensive proposition for a factory. So we kind of let our customers tell us what they required. And so that's what we complied with. So we're not RAP certified. We may be at some point in the future, but we did spend a lot of time as we were building direct-to-source and planning things, understanding what it is are they looking for? What are they looking for in terms of pay? What are they looking for in terms of safety? What are they looking for in terms of shipping requirements? What are they looking for in terms of all of these different areas? To make sure that we were prepared to meet or exceed all of those areas for an assessment.
5: Thanks for joining us on our deep dive into ethical labor. There's still more to talk about, things like child and slave labor or blockchain verification strategies, but we felt this was a good overview of what ethical labor means. It's important to build a relationship with your manufacturer so you know what's happening on the factory floor. If you want to visit Directisource in Guatemala, give them a call or send an email to info at directisource.com listed in the description. They're a three-hour flight from the southern U.S., and they'd be happy to see you there.